Amen. So we're going to be continuing in 1 Samuel. We'll be doing chapters 9 and 10. I know the last time we got together, I promised two chapters. That didn't happen. It's going to happen tonight. So to kind of recap a little bit of what happened last week. So the people of Israel decided they were going to demand a king from God. They wanted a king like all the other nations had, which sounds good, right? Because God had always promised that there would be a king coming. There, ever since Abraham, there's going to be a king. You can even go as far back as when God tells Adam and Eve that there's going to be one who comes to crush the serpent's head. There's someone coming. There's a king coming. So this seems surface level like a good thing on paper. Hey, we want that king. It's not, though. Because they're actually they're choosing to reject God's leadership here. They want a king like all the other nations have. We don't want to be a community that has to do what God wants us to do. We don't want God to fight our battles for us. We don't want God to go before us. We want to have a king who leads us, who makes decisions for us, who defines what's right and what's wrong. We want to have a guy just like everybody else has. Instead of wanting what God wants for him, they want to be separate from God. They want to have a king. This is the same idea that ultimately made Jesus so disappointing for the Jews who lived in Rome at the time, because the Jews then, they wanted this, this Messiah to come who was going to rally up an army. He was going to get Israel out from under from captivity to overthrow Caesar and to make Israel this great and mighty nation. They were going to have this great king and leader. And Jesus was so disappointing to them because that's not the battle that Jesus came to fight. Jesus didn't come to kill Caesar. Jesus didn't come to divide people. Jesus came to reconcile all people to him and make a way for every person to come and to get to know God. So the last chapter that we were looking at ends with Israel saying, we want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. Samuel says, you really don't want that? They say, yes, we do. And so here's the king, chapter 9, that God has set aside for Israel. Israel gets their king. Chapter 9, verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerur, the son of Becherath, son of Aphia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He's a handsome, tall man. Isn't it, does that ever like interest you or kind of blow your mind what qualifies you for government work? Why is he the guy? He's cute. He's pretty big, too. Can he read or write? Don't know. But I want him to lead us. OK, sounds good. You know, but it's, isn't it fascinating to you? It's fascinating to me that God's word takes time to let you know a little bit about what he looked like. Like, that, that mattered. Why do you think that mattered so much that you have this tall, handsome guy to be king? Well, I, I'm, this is Wednesday night Bible study. I want to get in the weeds just a little bit with you, because this is stuff that I think is really, really cool. So you have the Israelites. They come from Egypt into the promised land. And when they send spies into the promised land to go and seek it out, they get freaked out. And they tell all the other Israelites, hey, we can't go in. 
Here's what they said specifically. It's Numbers 13.32. They said this. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. And we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So this is the report they bring back, which is kind of an enig enigmatic text, right? Because then you have to go, well, what are the, who are the sons of Anak? What are the Nephilim? The only idea that we have of who Nephilim are comes from Genesis chapter 6, where you've got the flood narrative. And in that, the people on earth had grown so wicked that God regretted that he made humans. And part of that was there were Nephilim living on the earth. And the idea there is that demons came and had children with the women, human women, and out of them came these sons of Anak, these demonically inspired, brutal warrior people. And as you hear that, you go, this isn't Dungeons and Dragons. Like, this is the Bible, dude. What are you, what are you talking about? Because that sounds kind of far-fetched, right? That you have these demons meet up with women, they have children, and out of them become these demonically inspired warlords and warriors that there's some extra biblical texts that point to that happening in the Canaanite area at the time that they're talking about in Numbers. Sounds a little crazy. What's crazier, though, to believe if you really think about it, if you really take a step back? Is it crazier to believe that these creatures, these things, may have existed and became warlords in the land of Cana? Or is it harder to believe the Christmas story? Because the Christmas story is that the creator God, the God who set every star in the sky, the God who formed every mountain, and before he had formed every mountain, knew who you would be, your eye color, every hair that would ever grow on your head, all the things you'd like, all the things you'd dislike, he'd have a plan for you, set apart all the way before he created the world. That God would be born from a woman, weak and defenseless and vulnerable, would learn how to, have to learn how to walk, have to learn how to be potty trained, have to learn how to eat from a spoon, have to go through puberty? Is it harder to believe that these things may have existed, or is it harder to believe that the Creator God was an incarnate man? Probably the Creator God was the incarnate man, but you have to believe that because it's a tenet of Christianity, that God became flesh and died for us. The other thing's harder to believe, and it really doesn't matter if you believe it or not. I just think it's interesting. You do have to believe that Jesus was God and that Jesus was born in the flesh. But this other thing is really fascinating to me, and that's, I think, why it pushes, hey, Saul was handsome. Saul was tall. Saul looked like all the other nation's kings. And you're actually going to be introduced to one of these guys later as we continue through Samuel. His name's Goliath of Gath. And he's one of these sons of Anak. He's this giant who goes before his army and declares the terms of the battle. That's what Israel wants. Israel wants their own Goliath of Gath. They want a guy who will go out and say, this is what we're doing. He's, he's not going to take prisoners. He's not going to take no for an answer. He's going to be in charge. That's what they want. The people of Israel ask for a king, just like all the other nations, and God is going to give them a king, just like all the other nations, not only in deed, but in form. He's pretty fascinating. So sorry for getting in the weeds. We can keep going. Verse three. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, 
Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalishah, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. So Samuel sets up in the previous chapter. You guys really want a king? Here's all the things the king is going to demand from you. And the people say, yes, we want a king. And so you're kind of left to wonder, well, what's this king up to? Like right now, is he, is he playing a lot of chess and getting good at strategy? Is he uh, learning how to manage out of big company and corporation and becoming a leader of a bunch of men? Is he practicing sword fighting? Nope. He's looking for donkeys and having a really bad time. He's traveling all over Israel trying to find these animals and cannot find them. This is the king. The first time we're introduced to him, he's got no luck looking for his dad's donkeys. And so verse five, when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, come, let us go back. Lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, the servant said to Saul, behold, there is a man of God in this city. And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Verse seven, then Saul said to his servant, but if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Verse 10, and Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So there's three things that God really points out about Saul, about this king that's going to lead God's people, going to lead Israel, going to restrain God's people. Three things that get pointed out in here. First of all, Israel's future king is ignorant about Samuel. He doesn't know who Samuel is, even though all Israel and even the servant knows, hey, there's this guy. Everything that he says comes true. Hey, we, need to, we should go talk to this guy because maybe he would know. Saul's completely ignorant about him. It indicates that maybe he never really participated in any of the feasts or any of the festivals or any of the things that God's people were routinely required to do. That Saul, because of his heritage, because of where he was born, he's counted as a people of God, but he doesn't actually know God, which I think is like so many Americans, right? Because Americans by default for a long period of time have had their default religion because we're one nation under God and in God we trust. If you're an American, you're Christian. It's synonymous. It's your heritage. It's, it's what you do. In the South, even going to church is just, it's part of your routine. It's like, it's this cultural norm. You have to do it. And how many of them are probably like Saul, where they go, they call themselves Christians, but they don't actually know God. They don't actually know Jesus. It's scary, isn't it? Because there's a group of people that will come to Jesus and say, oh, Jesus, yeah, we're Christians. And Jesus will go, I never knew you. So that's Saul. Saul is one of God's people, but he doesn't know God. He doesn't know Samuel's doing what God wants him to do. He's ignorant about him. The second thing is this, 
Saul doesn't seek the Lord in the trials of his life. Oh, we can't find him. Uh, let's just, we can't find the donkeys. Let's just go home. Let's just give up. Well, I don't have any money. What would be the point of going to see Samuel if we don't have any money? Our sacks are empty. He doesn't seek the Lord when he's in need. For me, when times are hard, where do I go? Do I give up? Do I say, oh, what's the point? Maybe we should just go home. I'm over this. I don't have any money. I don't have the education. I don't have any friends to help me with this. Or do we do, do I do what Samuel did in the previous chapter where he's faced with really big failure and rejection and disappointment? And the first thing he does is he goes away for a little bit and he seeks the Lord. Okay, God, what do you think about this? God, what do you say about this? Saul doesn't do that. There's contrast here between Samuel and Saul, between the person who follows God and the person who really doesn't know God. And the third thing, he thinks the Lord needs to be bought. You see, he goes, well, if we go and we talk to Samuel, I don't have anything to give him. Because spiritual favors, like we all know, need to be purchased from God. God won't do anything for free. That's what he thinks. He looks at the kings. He just looks just like the kings of all the other nations, doesn't he? He's pagan. If, if you want God to do something for you, you've got to rub the magic genie right. You've got to know the right things. You've got to sacrifice the right way. He thinks the Lord needs to be bought. Saul is the, the perfect guy to be the king of Israel like all the other nations have. Unlike Saul, you and I are supposed to know a few things about our God. The first thing I think is God wants you to access him like he's your father. And when things are confusing, when things are difficult, when things are hard and disappointing and frustrating, God wants you to actually come to him and talk to him about it, regardless of how your day with him has been, regardless of what you've gone through. One of my favorite illustrations that I've heard, and I'm going to keep repeating it until I hear a better one, is there's only one person who would dare wake up a king in the middle of the night for a glass of water, and that's a child. Regardless of the day that it's been, regardless of the argument that you may have had, regardless of the disappointment that you may have faced, there's only one person who would dare go up to a king and say, hey, would you go get me a glass of water? And the king would go, of course. And that's a child. And that's the access that you and I are supposed to know that we have with our God. We have access to our God like a father. It doesn't cost us anything. He doesn't want anything from you. He just wants a relationship with you. And second, God does not want you to work for his love. He doesn't want a transaction. He doesn't want a sacrifice. He wants a relationship with you. And so let me ask you this. Why does God love you? Because if you go to the New Testament, you could have a whole bunch of really, really good answers. But let's think about Saul. Why would Saul think that God loves him? Why does God love Saul? If you were only to use Old Testament texts, why does God love you? Moses actually tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 7, 7 through 8. Listen to it. It's really, it's really interesting. This is why God says he loves the Israelites. This is why God loves you and he loves me. This is why God loves Saul. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel. The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more numerous than the other people, for you were the fewest of people. But it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand. What did he just say? God did not love you because you were greater. In fact, you were smaller. It was because God loved you that he brought you out of Egypt. What did he just say? God loves you because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you. That's what he's saying. Edward Clowney, he comments on this 
text, and he says it like this. If a wife comes to a husband and she says, why do you love me? Everything's on the line. And the husband, he's got a few seconds to think, doesn't he? He can say, well, because you're beautiful, because um, you, you, you're really creative, because you're really smart, because you've got a great figure after all these years, because you've got a great career, because you're athletic and we could do a bunch of things together, because the way that we make each other laugh, there's all sorts of things that we could say. You're fun to be with and I have a great time with you. If you use any of those things, Edward Clowney says... If she's really not that smart for a moment, she might go, oh, that's really sweet. But if you really think about it, if the reason that I'm loved is because of how smart I am or what I do, really, you don't love me. You love the benefits that you get from me. You love the thing that I contribute. What happens if I get in an accident or if I'm injured or I get sick or I lose my job? What if you stop getting that benefit from me? Well, now the thing that makes you love me, whatever that is, X, Y, Z, if I lose X, Y, Z, I lose everything. Then I'm not lovable anymore. My, my identity is going to be gone. The only right answer, husbands, you might want to write this down. The only right answer is I love you because I love you. Because I love you. That's the right answer. It's this unconditional, you won't lose it. Even if you get in an accident, even if you get sick, that's the whole reason we take those vows from death till death do us part. Regardless of what circumstances come our way, I love you because I love you. That's the love that God has for you and for me. Why does God love you? Because he loves you. That's what Saul should know. We're supposed to look at this king and go, uh-oh, the future king of Israel's got it totally wrong. He doesn't, know, he doesn't know God. He doesn't know how to approach God. He doesn't know how God loves him. So verse 11, here's how it continues. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, is the seer here? They answered, he is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry, he has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. Verse 13, as soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited to eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward him on his way up to the high place. Verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Isn't it so amazing that even in the midst of active rejection of God, God still looks at the Israelites and says, my people, my people, my people. Regardless of the things that you and I have been through, regardless of where your kids are at with the Lord, God still actively every single day has opportunities for you and for me, for our kids, for our neighbors, for our family to turn to him. God still wants them. There's never a point that makes them too far gone for God. Even in the midst of active rebellion against him, God looks at them and hasn't given up on them, still wants them. He wants them to come home. Verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, 
here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people, control my people. It's a really interesting choice of words. The giving of this king really is more of a punishment than anything. God's going to give them exactly what they wanted, even down to how he looks. But in the end, it really is a punishment. There are some things that we ask for from God that we ask for in our lives that sometimes if we get them, will destroy us, will let us down, will beat us up, will disappoint us. And sometimes God lets us have those things that we will finally turn back to him and go, you know what? That didn't do it for me. That didn't bring me the hope that I wanted, the health that I wanted, the life that I wanted. Maybe I need to come back to my King Jesus. I think that's what's happening here with the Israelites. This king is going to control, restrain God's people so that hopefully they'll look back to God and say, actually, that's what we wanted all along. So verse 18, then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning, I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, I am not a Benjamite. Or sorry, am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me this way? This has got to be the most confusing conversation he's ever had. He goes, hey, have you seen where the seer is? And he goes, that's me. Also, the thing that you're worried about has been figured out. You haven't even told me about it yet. I'm just going to reassure you. Wouldn't that be the craziest conversation you've ever had? You ever have a conversation with someone you're hoping to get to some info? What if they answered and they just told you the info and hung up? That's basically what just happened here. You go, okay, I guess we're going to go get dinner at the high place, which would be the temple. Saul is saying, hey, come with me to the temple. We're going to have a meal together. And then you're going to stay the night. And in the morning, I'm going to tell you a little bit more, some important stuff. But as for the donkeys, don't even worry about them. They've been found and they're home. Crazy night, crazy day for Saul. Verse 22, then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, see, what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he's passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. So think about the people at this you could call it a party if you want. Basically, they were all sitting to eat. Um, Israelite would sacrifice to the Lord. This was the meal of the sacrifice. So Samuel would come and he would bless it. And then they would get to eat this food. And so the, the, this really great portion has been set aside for Saul. You just imagine the people sitting there. They have no idea who this guy is. Only Samuel does. 
It's this apparent nobody who's pretty filthy. He's been on the road walking all around Israel looking for donkeys. He's tired, I'm sure. Gets brought into here. They set him at the head of the table, a place of really esteem. Give him the best portion. And then they just kind of don't address it. He's just there. And then they, that's just interesting to me. Because it really makes me think about, you know, I, I think about like the, the wedding at Cana, where you have Jesus comes to this wedding, dirty, probably pretty gross, probably didn't have time to shower, that and he brought buddies with him. Like Saul only brought one servant, Jesus brought his crew with him. And I don't know if you've hung out with fishermen, but I have an uncle and a grandpa and a dad who love to fish. And when they're out fishing, man, they just get thirsty. And so Jesus's fishermen friends, they're thirsty and they drink all of the wine. So they come and they crash this party. And so you could just imagine the people who are there are probably frustrated with Jesus. Guy, this guy just showed up and he brought all of his crew and they just drank all this wine. Jesus did fix it. Jesus turned water into wine and fixed the party. But it makes you wonder about the people sitting here with Saul. It makes you wonder about the people sitting with Jesus at the wedding. Who would have been sitting there going, oh my gosh, that guy who just got crowned King Saul, we had dinner with him. Why didn't we say hi to him? Oh my gosh, I was rude to him. Why? Oh, why didn't I share with him? His camel was dead and I didn't give him a jump. What, what, why didn't I help? Or about with Jesus? Jesus at this wedding and later, years later, people would look back and go, I was at a wedding and he did a miracle. I was ticked at him. Does it make you wonder about the kind of things that maybe you and I face every single day that might be a burden, might be frustrating, might be this added little bit of difficulty that maybe God has put in our place so that we can see him work or see him do something. Because this whole chapter has a lot to do with what seems like trivial coincidence, doesn't it? Oh, you know, they're not here. Well, maybe we can go here. Well, let's see how that turns out. It just seems inconsequential, but really God is moving everything together to this big purpose that he has. It makes me wonder. It makes me think about Matthew 25, 31 to 46, where this is what Jesus says. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, is the end of time, the Son of Man has come in all of his glory and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he'll place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say it to you. As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. I think the Lord presents for you and me multiple opportunities every day, every week, every month to interact with our God and things that he has going on throughout our community, that there might be opportunities for us to do something out of kindness or just out of service to our king that you go, you know what? That was inconsequential. 
You know, that didn't matter. You know, that was annoying. That was frustrating. That was so out of my way. Like there was a few months ago when I'd broken my leg. I don't know if you remember that. I'd broken my leg and the pastors have a number that gets passed around to all of our cell phones. So when the office is closed, if you call the office and press a button, you'll get a pastor. So if there's a, only use it for emergencies. Okay. I'm, this is some insider secrets here. So if you have an emergency, you can get a hold of a pastor. Someone's at a hospital, whatever. So anyway, there's this call. Hey, I really need to meet with someone right now. Okay. My leg is broken and I'm sitting down to dinner with my family. And I go, okay, okay. That sounds great. And so I leave my dinner. I come to the office to sit down with these people and the meeting goes terribly. It goes awful. The mom goes, my daughter really needs to get saved. And I say to the daughter, do you want to get saved? She goes, no. And I'm like, what do you want me to do here, man? <laughs> so I'm not Jesus. I can't really, I can't change her heart. So they leave. I forget about it. I'm like, you know, that was frustrating. That was so inconsequential. That was such a waste of my time. It was such an inconvenience for me to get here. And it inconvenienced my family. And then months later, they call back to the emergency line. They get another pastor and they want the pastor at the broken leg. So they figure that there's only one of us who's dumb enough to ride a one wheel going 30 miles an hour. And so I come back and I meet with the same people, but this time she wants to give her life to the Lord. And so this thing that really was frustrating for me, really irritating, really like, God, that was just such a waste of time. I didn't know, but God was using it to bring glory to him. God was using it so that this girl would ultimately turn her life over to Jesus. And I still keep connected with this girl. She's doing great. So for me, as I read through this text, it reminds me, hey, there's opportunities every single day for me to take my AirPods out of my ears and engage with people the way that Jesus wants me to in this community, because it's so easy to check out sometimes. God doesn't want people who check out. God wants people who say, okay, Jesus, give me an opportunity to feed you today. Give me an opportunity to give you drink. Give me an opportunity to visit you. Give me an opportunity to clothe you. Give me an opportunity to see you today, Jesus. Let me be your hands and your feet. And so chapter 10, then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Samuel's going to give him three signs. Three super clear signs. You can't just say, oh, that was coincidence. That was a lucky guess. These are three things that are going to happen in this order, very specific to let you know you're the guy God has chosen. You're going to be the king. So verse two, when you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelazah, and they will say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Can it get any more clear than that? Like That's like saying, hey, you're going to go to Central Point to the 7-Eleven. You're going to go inside to the third row, and there someone is going to say to you, and then tells you exactly what they're going to say. Would that blow your mind? If that happened, would you believe anything that was said previously? You totally should. And that's what should happen with Saul. You should be like, okay, I guess I'm king. Like, oh my goodness. But here's the second thing, verse three. Then you shall go on from there further and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. 
and they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which means the hill, the hill of the Lord, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with a harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them, prophesying. Verse 6, then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come to you and show you what you shall do. So there's the three signs. You'll meet two men at Rachel's tomb, telling you to head home, that the donkeys are found, that at Tabor, there's going to be three men bringing sacrifices. You're going to take two loaves of bread from them. And finally, there's going to be some worshipers, and the Spirit of the Lord is going to rush upon you, and you're going to be turned into another man. And so verse 9, it happens. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he had prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, and who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place." Do you know how we have a saying like, oh, stranger things have happened. Like, it snowed in Texas. Stranger things have happened, I guess. You know, with Saul, this became one of those sort of sayings. Man, it's weird it snowed in Texas. Well, Saul became a prophet, I guess. You know, stranger things have happened. That's basically the saying that came about. But isn't it crazy what happened previous? It says, God gave him a new heart, that the Spirit of God rushed upon him, that God made him a new man. In the Old Testament, God's spirit rushing upon someone, God's spirit indwelling in someone was semi-rare. You saw it in only a few individuals. You see it in Joseph and Bezalel and Othniel. You see it in Gideon or Samson. You see it here in Saul. It's the significant empowering of the people that God has chosen to do God's work. God's spirit is going to empower them to do that. Man, don't you want that? Like, Don't you want God's spirit to rush upon you, to give you a new heart? And there's unfortunately this belief that has always been in the church. You even see it all the way back with Paul when he's writing letters. There's this belief that when you get saved, you're a JV Christian. Like you're, you're just, you're, you're, you're kind of just temporary there. We're just kind of feeling you out. We don't know if you're going to make the cut. You're JV Christian. Yeah, you've been saved by Jesus, but you need Jesus plus. You need a premium subscription. You need to be able to speak in tongues. You need to be able to prophesy. You need to be able to do all these things for you to be a, a pure Christian. And so, man, I want the Spirit of God rushing me. I want God to change my heart. But, man, I, I've never had that. I mean, I remember in middle school, I was at this youth group. And, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't really want to go to church much. But I was given this one a chance because my friends went there. And I swear to you, it was, it was not Edgewater. Thank the Lord. I swear to you, the, the, the pastor, he goes, the high school pastor, we're all just going to close our eyes and God's going to talk to you. And if you're God's kid, you're going to be able to hear it. And then you're going to turn to your neighbor and share to them what God said to you. And I'm like, you know what? I want this. I, I want this. 
I want God's spirit to talk to me. I want to have that kind of conversation with the Lord. So I close my eyes and and I'm I'm really sincere. Nothing. Now I'm like, well, I can't be the only one. Maybe this, this whole thing flopped. That sermon really wasn't that great anyway. So I sit back and the girl on my left tells me what God told her. And the person on my right told me what God told them. And then I just lied. Well, this is what God told me. Because I want to fit in. I don't want them to know that I'm the lesser Christian. Is that how it is? Like, like am, I, am I a JV Christian and, and I just didn't make the cut? Because I can accept that if we're playing basketball. I'm not making the cut for varsity. That's fine. Because my talents, my gifts, my abilities aren't going to make it. But this apparently, God can make you into a new man. God can give you a new heart. God's spirit can rush upon you and empower you. How do I get that? Well, here's what the Bible tells you and me. There were false teachers going around telling people, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Galatians, I had to go through the books of the Bible in my head. Galatians are false teachers going around Galatians saying, hey, Jesus is really, really good. But if you want to be that varsity Christian, you want to be able to do all that stuff, you're going to have to get circumcised too. And he's telling these these. These Gentiles, you're going to have to do this one more thing if you want to experience that. And man, there were men who were all in about the Lord, and they said, okay, I'm going to do it. And they did it, and they came back to church the next day, and they got the letter from Paul, and the pastor's reading goes, hey, you don't have to get circumcised. Good news. You know there were men in church on that Saturday or Sunday morning going, excuse me? (laughs) Say what he said again. Read it one more time for me. There were other teachers going around who were saying, hey, Jesus is really good, but you need to abstain from certain foods or you need to do certain things in order to be the full-fledged Christian. If anyone tells you you need Jesus plus something else, they're lying to you. That if you read Romans, you would see that Jesus has given you everything. That when you accept Jesus into your life, you get his spirit and your heart does become his heart. That the old man gets When baptized, he dies with Jesus. A new man comes out, and you and I are supposed to be this new man with a new heart, with new hobbies, with new habits, with a new life, with new attitudes towards people. That's who we're supposed to be. And guess what? Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes we go, God, I just wish that you'd give me a new heart. And sometimes God might be responding, I'm trying. You keep saying no. That it's this daily thing where we choose to go, okay, God, I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to choose to live the life you wanted to. I'm sure Jesus didn't want to give up all of heaven to come and be homeless and hang out with 12 people who never got along, who always got the wrong, pi- always got the wrong point, were always arguing just to be betrayed by them and to be beaten, to be crucified. That's not like Jesus' dream vacation What it means to follow your king is to say, okay, I'm going to live this life self-sacrificially loving people the way that Jesus wants me to love them. And in doing that, 2 Timothy would say it fans into flame the gifts that God has given to us, that you'll see Jesus, his spirit become more alive in you as you see your heart be more transformed into his heart. He's already given you everything. You have right now, by accepting Jesus as your king, by believing, by calling him Lord, and believing that God raised him from the dead, you have more in you now than Samuel could have ever dreamed to have had. You have more in you now than any of the prophets or any of the people of the Old Testament could have ever hoped for. The access to God that you have is unfathomable to these people. Now you look at Saul and you go, man, I wish I could do that. He'd look, he would look at you and me and go, you've already got it. 
You've already been given so much more. I think so many times that's how we need to look at ourselves. God's already given me that. God, I want to participate with you. God, I want you to break my heart for the things that break yours. You've already given me a new life, new way of seeing people. Help me to see them that way. Because the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing. Help me to stop doing them. Sometimes we just forget, I think, to live like we have that. And so verse 14, they get home and Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? Which is a great question. We've gone for probably quite a while looking for some donkeys. And he said, to seek the donkeys. And when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. And Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. That's all he says. He said very clearly, the donkeys have been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. I'm still not certain if Saul's 100% convinced he's going to be the king. Like he's seen thing after thing. Exactly as Samuel said, he's probably going, dude, there's a mistake. There's no way. And you could say that there's some false humility about Saul. But if, I think if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 15, the Lord confirms that he's a really humble guy. He goes, even though you were the least, you thought yourself the least, I made you king. I think he really is a really humble guy. I think that God had this really humble guy who just happened to be tall, and God gave him all the things he needed to do the job that God needed him to do. That God didn't set Saul up for failure. God's spirit did rush upon him and gave him all the things that he would need in order to do a good job to be king. But ultimately, Saul, as you'll see later, chooses to disobey God, and that's why he fails. But God gave him everything he needed to do a good work. That God really does want his people to succeed, even when they're in disobedience to him. God really does try to give them the best opportunity, the best he can. And verse 17, now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel gathers all the Israelites together. He rebukes them a little bit. And he goes, we're going to find the king right now. We're figuring this out. Verse 20. Then Samuel, he doesn't want anyone to think that it's a rigged election. Wouldn't want anyone to think that. So what he does is he sets up a system that nobody can control. You're going to take lots, which is like drawing straws, like casting dice in a way. So verse 20, then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought them, he could not be found. So get this. They're taking Lot's, coming down to it. And Saul's there. Saul's present. And he's hearing them go through. And they go, it's the Benjamites. He's going, no way. It's the Matrites. Okay. And then he starts to just take off. He's like, I'm going to go hide somewhere. Because now it's been taken. It's Saul. Saul here. Everyone's looking around. Where's Saul? They can't find him. Verse 22, so they inquired again of the Lord. They say, God, where is he? Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, 
he has hidden himself among the baggage. So everybody's there. They've said, we want a king. God gives him a king. They finally get the king identified, and they need God to show him who he is because he's hiding. Is this such a great king? The system already is starting to break down. This isn't a great start, right? Verse 23, then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. To me, this is funny. This is broken. Like he's hiding and they go, here, this guy is really tall. That's the guy. They're stoked about him. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. They got the king they wanted, but ultimately, it's going to be a disaster. So before you go, let me ask you just one question. This is a test. With the kindergartners, with the grade schoolers, even up to the high schoolers, when I teach, I like to give a little test. Are you really paying attention? Why does God love you? Because he loves you. How did he prove that he loved you? God gave his only begotten son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life that God proved his love for you and me on the cross through his son, Jesus. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. So Jesus, we are so thankful that you love us. And it's not because of anything that we bring to the table. It's not anything that we could ever lose. That There's nothing I could do that could ever make you retract your love from me. But you love me because you love me because you love me. Help me to love my wife the way that you love me. Help me to love my kids the way that you love me. Help us all to love the people that you bring into our lives the way that you have loved us by following Jesus, our example. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.